If you have your Bible, let's turn in those Bibles together to Romans chapter 14 as we keep going through Romans. If you don't have a Bible, you can get one of the black Bibles that's on the end of each pay, or, or the end of each pew. And we will be on page 949 in that Bible, uh, looking together at Romans 14, verses 13 through 20. Let me read those for us. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another brother stumble by what he eats. Uh, I met a mother this week whose son plays basketball and seems to be a really, really talented basketball player and actually goes to a special youth team in the city to play basketball. And she was talking about how uh, there's a particular very famous NBA player who I'm not gonna name because why? But a famous NBA player uh, who has taken an interest in that team, and so her son has gotten to know this, this guy and just really has a great, great respect for this guy. And uh, I wonder, how, how does an NBA player come into a youth league team like that and start befriending the kids and encouraging the kids Probably it's not going to be that he puts himself in the middle of their game and starts dunking on them and fouling them and all of these kinds of things where he could just show off to everybody in there, you guys are just kids, I'm at the top of the NBA, boom, in your face. That wouldn't go over very well, would it? He walks in there, everybody already knows his reputation. They, they know that he's a, a famous player, that he's really good. And what's he doing? Well, he's, he's getting down to their level. He's talking to them where they are. He's coaching them. He's helping them to get better. And if you are a Christian in the church, then that's one of the things that we need to do. If you start to consider yourself to be strong in the faith as you're growing up in Christ... What this passage is telling us not to do is not to come in and start dunking on Christians who haven't grown up in the faith as much as you. This obviously is a temptation or the Bible wouldn't address it. It seems to be something that probably was going on in the Roman church in the day when, when Paul was writing there or he wouldn't have addressed almost a whole chapter and a half toward this issue. But this seems to be the problem, is that there are those who consider themselves to be strong, who are looking around at those who are weaker in their faith, and saying to themselves, boy, what is wrong with those people? We're going to show them. We're going to show them just how strong they are, and how strong they ought to be, and that we are up here 
and that they are down here. But the funny thing is that at the same time, those who were weaker in their faith were kind of almost doing the same thing as they looked at those who were strong. They, they were looking at those who were strong and saying things like, what, what in the world are you doing? Why are you eating all of that meat that you bought in the meat market? This was one of the issues that he brought up at the beginning of the chapter. Why are you eating all that meat in the meat market when you don't know where it's been? That meat that you're buying could have been sacrificed to idols before it came to you. And, and, and what is wrong with you? And, and judging that person who in their freedom in Christ was eating that meat that God had declared was clean. Now they weren't doing the sinful thing that the Bible said not to do, which is sitting down at the table of demons. They weren't going over to somebody's house who was saying to them, hey, we got a bunch of meat sacrificed to idols. Let's have a big Zeus festival at our house. The Bible pretty clearly says, don't do that. But it doesn't say, hey, you have to make sure that every piece of food has been certified as Christian kosher in order to be able to, to eat it. So there was this dispute that was going on, and it kind of, it had three issues in the book, or in this chapter of Romans that came up. One is that meat issue. Another issue was the observance of days, where there were some who, who still kind of in their old feelings, probably especially believers of Jewish background, felt that they just needed to keep those Jewish holidays, uh, those special days out of, uh, out of reverence for Christ, who those days really were pointing to. And those who were stronger in their faith realized, hey, we don't have to do that anymore. Jesus has fulfilled the law for us, the ceremonial law, and, and we are no longer bound to keep those days. And then there's a third issue that we'll, we'll look at a little bit more specifically next week where there's this issue of the drinking of wine. Uh, verse 21 is, is where we'll get to, not next week, two weeks from now. Uh, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. We'll, we'll talk about that next week. But you know, this continues to be an issue today. The wine drinking may have been something kind of similar, like maybe the wine was offered to idols, or it may have just been like, you know, kind of, what everybody knows is a controversy about wine is that a lot of people have a big problem with it. And so what do you do? And so there, there is, are these issues where there's the strong and there's the weak. And as we come to Romans 14, there tends to be a question in all of the ways that we would apply it today, who's strong and who's weak? I want to tell you as we, as we start out in this passage, Whatever issue you have in mind in particular, where you're thinking to yourself, okay, here's the group of weak Christians today and here's the group of strong Christians today, I'm gonna guess you probably put yourself in that strong category. It's probably where you're thinking of yourself. If that's the case, then this is gonna call us, as it's already said in this chapter and as it's gonna call us again to today is, don't be prideful about it. Don't come in like an NBA player dunking on a bunch of kids in a youth league. Don't just come in to show off. Instead, do what Jesus says that we should do to consider others more significant than ourselves, to be a servant of all and not to come in showing what a high position we have. Or it is possible that you consider yourself to be the weak one. It is possible that Maybe you are the weak Christian in some particular area. Or maybe you just 
This is something that you find more and more these days is that there are those who like to be in the category of weak because we're in a culture that really, really promotes victimhood. Don't be eager to be weak. Don't be eager to take offense. Don't play the world's game of looking to win by being a victim and saying, I'm the weak one and all these strong Christians are doing terrible things to me. What this is saying is that what we should do instead is that we should regard each other with humility and with love. That's kind of the big point here, is that we should walk together in love. Because there's all kinds of things that, you know, we have a, a mission of the church in the world that God has given us to go and to make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus gave us that mission. And then as we do that mission, churches throughout the ages have found that they also have to, you know, function internally, not just to do the external mission, but to do the internal things. And that as you do the internal things, that sometimes there can be these divisions that start to open up. And there can be these cracks, there can be these feelings of not love toward each other, but of competition toward each other. And when, when those things start to take hold, that's when the external mission starts to die out. That's when churches start to die. That's one of Satan's greatest scheme, greatest schemes in his desire to destroy the work of God is for believers to start despising each other. So what do we do? Well, first of all, what we should do is we should not scandalize weak Christians, but do the opposite of judgment. This is going to make more sense, by the way, if you're looking at the outline on the back of the bulletin. So it's there. If you're looking at it and using a pen, you'll make me happy, and I'll preach better. So do that. But what does he say? Verse 13, the first half of the verse, he says, let us therefore not pass judgment on one another any longer. Now, I have to give you the caveats. This is the third time in Romans 14 I've had to give these caveats where he talks about not judging because immediately, immediately, many minds will go to whatever kind of category they have set up as uh, this, is a, this is a thing where Christians are judgmental and they ought not to be judgmental. Well, depends on what you mean, all right? Jesus didn't say, never judge. He said, in the way that you judge, you will be judged. He said, you need to be ready to have the log removed from your eye as you also go and help your brother remove the speck from his eye. Jesus, in fact, said, judge. He commanded us to judge. He said, judge with right judgment which means not in pride, not in arrogance, not in setting ourselves up to dunk on other people, but in that kind of a God-honoring way. The Bible never says that we are never to make any kind of moral judgments. In fact, what the Bible plainly says is right and wrong is something that is actually arrogant for us to say, well, I can't judge about that. To look at what God's Word says this is sin, and then to say, "Mm, I'm not so sure. Sometimes people say, well, that's humble, but it's incredibly arrogant toward God. Uh, the, the, The Pope, the present Pope, is famous for having said at one point when he was asked about homosexuality, 
saying, who am I to judge? Which is a funny thing for a pope to say, but it's also a funny thing for any Christian who has a Bible to say. Because the Bible is extremely clear, extremely clear. Anybody who has a Bible is in a position to be able to say, God has made a moral judgment that both homosexual activity and homosexual desire are sins to be repented of and not behavior where we just say, who am I to judge? There are sins, by the way, that it says in 1 Corinthians 6 that some of the members of the Corinthian church had engaged in until God granted them repentance and washed them clean by the power of his spirit. We praise God for that. I bring that up not just because of the Pope, but because it's been in the news this week that there's a preacher in Atlanta who's very influential named Andy Stanley, who is now preaching the, that, that homosexual couples should be included in church membership. And he said, we don't want to draw lines. We want to draw circles. That's his line. Well, guys, God drew the lines. God has made the moral judgments. And as I say that, I just I want to go where it says in Ephesians about this very explicitly. All right? And you guys are wondering when I'm going to get back to Romans. I will. I will. But it says in Ephesians very explicitly. It, it says, you know, excuse me, um, Ephesians 5.5, 5, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words. I'm telling you this because more and more you will hear the empty words that anyone who says that sexual immorality is wrong is, is just judgmental. You're going to hear that, that they're just drawing lines when they should draw circles. But this says right here in the Bible, that is deception from Satan. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. So, I'll just leave it at that, but I'll say, when it says, let none of you judge one another any longer, it is not talking about the kinds of things that the Bible says are clearly what we ought not to be engaging in as Christians. Now, since I've brought up that topic specifically, should we treat those who are engaged in homosexual behavior or who identify themselves as homosexual, should we treat them as worse than other people? Of course not. We're in the middle of a whole world that is lost in an identity of sin and embracing it. And we need to call all sinners to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. It's, it's often, there, there's kind of this misunderstanding sometimes that, well, Christians, uh, you know, Christians are just um, telling gay people that they are going to go to hell unless they turn to Jesus. No, we're literally telling everybody that they're going to go to hell unless they turn to Jesus. Jesus said, you must be born again or you will not see the kingdom of heaven. What's changed is that the society that we're in has decided that a certain kind of sin is no longer sin, and yet it still is, and it's destructive. So I just wanted to mention that kind of because of current events and because this, this teaching here that says, let us not pass judgment, 
Sometimes it's applied to things like that when it really, really ought not to be applied to things like that that are just very clear moral judgments in Scripture. So what is this talking about? Because we don't want to just say, oh, well, the Bible says judge with right judgment so we can throw out the passages that say don't judge one another. It actually says this. Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. And what this is talking about is talking about situations where Christians who are trying to faithfully honor God look at other Christians who are trying to faithfully honor God and would say to themselves, look at that weakling. Oh man, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. I'm so glad that I am not so immature in my faith as to serve Jesus like that guy. No, he says, put that away. Put that away. This kind of judgment, this passing judgment on one another is that kind where we would approach a brother, a sister in Christ with pride rather than with the humility that characterizes the mind of Christ, according to Philippians chapter 3 or 2. He says, rather than doing that, rather than passing judgment on one another any longer, decide, make a decision not to place stumbling blocks, never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. The way that he worded this in the, the original, the word for passing judgment and the word for deciding are almost exactly the same word. He's kind of saying, don't judge one another, rather make this judgment. Make this decision about yourself that you're not going to put things in other people's paths that are going to trip them up spiritually. He says about this stumbling block and about this hindrance, both of those words are essentially mean exactly the same thing. They're just two words for the same thing. It started out as a word that was talking about a, a physical object that could be in your way that would make you trip, or maybe even sometimes referring to a trap that someone had set for you in your path. But it became a word that was talking not just about physical stumbling blocks and physical traps, but about those kinds of things spiritually that would come in our way. He's saying it is possible for us as believers to cause other believers to stumble in their faith. As they're pursuing Christ, as they want to honor Christ, as they're just thinking, I want to move forward in my walk with Christ, that it is possible for another believer to come over and say, you're doing it wrong, and just put their foot out and trip them. That's a thing that can happen. And he says, make the decision that you're not going to be the one who does that. It might happen to you. You might get tripped. You might get trapped. You might stumble. But make a decision that you will not be the one to do that to others. Even if somebody's done it to you. Make a decision. He, 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 th those kinds of stumbling blocks, well, what, what kind of stumbling blocks is it talking about? Well, as we go on, we're going to see. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus, verse 14, that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Here's the idea. It's to sympathize with your brother. He gives the example here specifically about that meat situation that I mentioned earlier. He, he says up front, it's not as though there's no right or wrong answer about this. 
That's why he already said earlier in the chapter that those who were determined that they had to eat only vegetables out of honor of Christ, that they were those who were weak in their faith. He actually takes a position here and says, those who know that Christ has, has declared all foods clean, that, that, that's a better understanding of the Christian faith. There's a, a strength that's demonstrated there. It, 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 because Christ has declared all foods clean. You, you need to know this too. When, when you come across certain cults, they will tell you, hey, you know, if you really want to honor Jesus, you, you ought to be keeping kosher. And those who don't know their Bibles well will say, wait a second, maybe you're right. Because that is written into the law. It does say abstain from those kinds of animals. Well, here's what Jesus said. Mark 7, verse 18. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. And it says this explicitly in Mark 7, 19. Thus he declared all foods clean. Hear that? Jesus declared all foods clean. So we are no longer under obligation to keep those Old Testament dietary laws. And he went on and he explained this. Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within the heart, or from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. There's another instance of this where Peter has a vision as he's about to, to be called to go into the home of Cornelius, a Gentile, and to eat in Cornelius' house to share the gospel with Cornelius. Jesus gives him a vision of this sheet coming down from heaven filled with all kinds of unclean animals, unclean according to the law of Moses. And Jesus tells him three times, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time and said, what God has made clean, do not call common. So all that to say that in this issue of can a Christian eat any kind of food out of honor of Christ, the answer is yes, because Jesus declared all foods clean. All of those Old Testament laws about which food you are to eat pointed to the separateness of Israel from the nations. And, And it points us still today toward our need to be holy and set apart from the nations. But in Christ, we no longer have to be set apart in keeping these particular dietary laws. We, we now are a people of every tribe and tongue and nation, with people in Papua New Guinea eating very different food from what we're eating here. And we don't say, because you don't eat the same food, you are not part of the same body of Christ with us. He's done all of that. He's declared all foods clean. But here's the way that he calls the strong Christians to sympathize. He says, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. He says, look, you have brothers in Christ who think that they need to keep a certain diet out of honor of Christ. They don't think that they have to do that to get their sins forgiven. If they thought that, they would be outside the gospel. But they just think, hey, this is the way that I'm supposed to honor Christ. They're mistaken about it. But Paul says, 
put yourself in their shoes. Put yourself in the shoes of a person who feels that they must keep these regulations in order to follow Christ. And think about if you had that conviction, what would it then look like for, for you to serve Christ? He says, if, if anyone thinks it unclean, it is unclean. Why is that? Well, it's because of what he's going to say at the very end of the chapter, which we'll get to in two weeks. He says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. See, the, the strong brothers in Rome wanted to come up to the weak brothers and say, you're weak. Eat this meat with me. And the weak brothers were being caused to stumble from that because they did not have it in their conscience that it was okay for them to do this. And so what was happening, well, you had two people doing the same action, but one of them doing it not out of faith, breaking his conscience, doing what was on his conscience not to do, and so he was led into sin by that strong brother. It's a stumbling block that was presented there. He says, put yourself in this person's shoes. And the, he says, what should we do instead of presenting stumbling blocks? Well, we should walk in love. Instead of showing off our freedom, we should walk in love. He says, verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. He says here, hey, don't carry out your Christian walk with the goal of just showing that you're an awesome Christian. Let people think that maybe you're not as strong in Christ as you actually are. It's okay. They don't have to know everything about the depth of your walk with Christ. They don't have to know everything about how many theology books you have read to be able to have the point in your head of exactly how right you are about this point. And maybe you are right, but he says, hey, you know what's much more important than people seeing that you are a strong example to follow? What's much more important is people knowing that you love them in Christ. He says, walk in love. Walk in love. He says, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now, I've got to ask a theological question about this verse here, okay? This is sometimes people will say, well, this is a verse that means that there are people for whom Christ died who are going to go to hell. I, I want to ask this. Is this verse saying, this is verse 15. If you're not looking at it, you need to look at it to think about this. The end of the verse, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Is it saying that a brother in Christ can be sent to hell by our unloving behavior? And I want to answer that with another question. Can a person for whom Christ died be destroyed for all eternity? The answer is no. The answer is no. How do we know that? Well, it's because he's already said so in the book of Romans. In Romans 8, verse 31, it says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. You hear that? He's saying, Jesus died for us. God the Father gave up God the Son for us. If that's the case, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Well, we could just stop there. That verse just says it. 
If, if Jesus has died for someone's salvation, they will go to heaven. They will be graciously given all things. He says, who is it that Jesus has died for? Verse 33 of Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Jesus died for all of the elect, all of those who God determined from before the foundation of the world that he would set his grace and mercy and love on. He says, it is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he lists every kind of thing that there is that could separate us from the love of Christ and says, none of this can. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So, this verse in Romans, 15, Romans 14, verse 15, if we take it together with what it says in Romans 8, it cannot possibly mean that the brother for whom Christ died is going to be separated from Christ and suffer an eternity in hell. That's just not possible. If it were possible for a brother in Christ to trip you up to the point that you lost your salvation and you were eternally destroyed, you would absolutely have that happen to you. And you would have it happen to you before a brother in Christ ever did it because Satan would be eager to do it first. But God is bigger than those things. He's going to keep us. We don't have to worry from this that somebody who was going to go to heaven is going to go to hell because we tripped them up. However, we need to be very, very careful not to trip each other up. That's what he's getting at here. We're not to destroy the one for whom Christ died. We're not to do the things that are destructive, that tend toward harm, murderous actions toward our brothers and sisters in Jesus. He's saying, hey, you guys who are showing off how much meat you can eat in the worship service, <laughs> while, while your brothers in Christ are sitting over there with only their vegetables going, oh, I can't believe they're doing that. Maybe I should do that too. I don't think so, but it may seem like, well, we're just being strong Christians here, but he's saying, you are doing something hateful. In showing off your freedom at the expense of love. This is the point here. We ought to be willing to lay aside our freedoms that we genuinely have in Christ out of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to not do things that are self-destructive, or excuse me, destructive to others just because we can. The point here is, just think of it this way. You know, the, the number one thing that, that Christians usually bring up to me when I say Romans 14 is alcohol. As I said, and we're going to get to alcohol next time, but I'll, I will just use it as one example right here. Think first about the self-sacrificial love of Jesus. What did Jesus do? He set aside all that he deserved to be given to him the position that he deserved to sit in. He set it aside, came here out of love for us, went all the way to the point of death on a cross, being mocked for things that were not true about him. He could have just jumped up and told everybody, 
I hereby dunk on you. You are wrong. But what did he do? Out of self-sacrificial love, he laid aside his freedoms and went to the cross to purchase us. Contrast that with the brother in Christ who opens up a beer in front of a brother who was a sloppy drunk before he came to Jesus and still struggles to stay sober. You see what's happening there? Maybe even that brother is just saying, oh, it's so ridiculous, all these Christians who think that you can't drink if you're a Christian. Look at me. And what's happening to the brother beside him? He's wondering, am I going to make it to the next day sober? You you see that, that freedom, it's the real freedom, but it can be so destructive when it's flaunted. And when it doesn't take into account the love that we're to have toward our brothers who might not have the same strength that we have. Don't do stuff that's harmful just because you have some kind of technical reason why you're free to do it. What should we do instead? Well, we should walk as strong Christians by the Spirit. Look at verses 16 through 18. So do not let what you Regard as good, be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. He says, let not what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. He's saying, hey, if this is a real freedom that you have, why do you want to like stir up all kinds of controversy about it where it's going to get mocked? where it's going to get derided? Why, why, why do you want to walk in such a way that even though you and your, your feelings, you're confident that you're honoring Christ, what, what kind of a twisted, sin-sick heart is saying, I just, I just really, really am itching for a fight over this, so I'm going to flaunt it? So that, that's not a healthy thing. This is uh, Christian Twitter. The whole thing. <laughs> Is just so, so many people wanting to get in these fights about stuff that's just not necessary. But he says, what, what instead? Well, put the fruit of the Spirit in the spotlight. Instead of putting your freedom in the spotlight in a way that's going to get it spoken of as evil, put the fruit of the Spirit in the spotlight. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He's saying, here's what it looks like to walk as a citizen of heaven. It's to walk in righteousness. Of course, Jesus' righteousness is the only righteousness that, that makes us right with God. But as those who are right with God, what it's talking about here is that, that we need to seek to live a holy and righteous life. To do what is right before God. And peace. He said, we, we have peace with God through Jesus by faith in Jesus, and we also have peace with one another that's built up. He says, pursue peace, not controversy, and pursue joy. Joy is part of this element of the the kingdom of God. John Piper's right, that, that God is glorified in us when we are satisfied in him. That our joy in Christ is exactly what he wants for us. He says that he wants our joy to be made full and to be complete. 
So he says, put these things in the spotlight. This is just kind of shorthand for what he lists out in Galatians 5 as the fruit of the Spirit. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. By which he means, you're not going to have to get into some kind of a controversy over whether there's a regulation that should or should not be followed about the fruit of the Spirit. It's just obvious, this is what we want the Holy Spirit to stir up in our hearts and to work toward by the means of grace. Is all of these things, he says, he says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That's Romans 14 right there. You can sum up all of Romans 14 with Galatians 5.26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Instead, grow in the grace and the fruit of the Spirit. Let that be what's on display as our membership in the kingdom of heaven. We also need to be eager to be accepted by both God and fellow Christians. Now, occasionally, you'll meet a well-meaning Christian who will brag about how persecuted they have been at all of the churches they've ever been a part of. And it usually is a lot of churches <laughs> in this situation. Boy, I was at this church, and they just didn't want me because I was just too strong in my faith, and they just couldn't handle it. And then I was over at this church, and they didn't want me because I was too strong in the way that I worship, and they didn't want me. And then I went over here, and, and, and it could almost be this kind of badge of honor sometimes to Christians in a certain way of thinking of, boy, I must really be serving God well because I get rejected everywhere I go. Here, here is what it says in, in verse 18. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Now, caveat, just like the caveat with judgment, we're not supposed to do anything it takes to be approved by men. That's called fear of man. All right? We're not to accept the world's system in order for the world to approve us. We're not to approve of sin so that nobody ever calls us judgmental. We're, we're not to do all kinds of things. And of course, Jesus was, had a great reputation as a man of God and yet also was crucified. And so we can't expect that living faithfully in Christ that we'll never face any opposition. It's just true that everyone who seeks to live faithful in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Bible says that. But at the same time, we ought to seek to be known as people who are people of peace and love and joy in the Holy Spirit and of righteousness. People who, even though some might see us and disagree with us in ways that makes them angry, that they're still going to be able to see, but she is an honorable woman. He is an honorable man, and especially among our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is a good thing to be approved by our brothers and sisters in Christ, our fellow church members. Acceptable to God, what does that mean? Well, our sin's forgiven. You can't be acceptable to God by just saying, I'm going to do good enough. It, it, it comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it is impossible to please him. 
You can't be accepted by God without faith in Jesus Christ. It, it says in Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way to be accepted with God. And as we are accepted with God, and as we have faith, that's going to come out in fruit of the Spirit that would even help us to be, according to verse 18, approved by men. And to have these relationships with human beings where other people would be able to look and to say, that is a person who has the fruit of the Spirit, not necessarily in full. None of us has the fruit of the Spirit in full, but buds of the fruit of the Spirit that are growing, and I see the grace of God at work in that person, that is something that's valuable and that we ought to strive for rather than striving to get kicked out because we're so faithful. He says, pursue what builds up and not what tears down in verses 19 and 20. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God Everything indeed is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So he says, do not destroy. Don't come in looking to tear down, but instead look for what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Now, both of these things, you know where they're going to come from. They're going to come from Christ. They're going to come from his spirit. They're going to come from the ordinary means of grace where Jesus builds us up, helps us to love each other, helps us to grow in Christ. That peace was purchased on the cross. Did you know that? The peace that we have between fellow believers and ourselves was bought by Jesus' blood. It says so in Ephesians 2. It's talking especially about the old divide between Jew and Gentile, but it applies beyond that as well but he says but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two and so making peace and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Another thing that it says in the Bible, blessed are the peacemakers. And you know how that's going to happen? It's by faith in Jesus Christ, who has made peace by the blood of the cross. And he says, let us, make for what, what, uh, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding, for edification, for helping each other actually grow in Christ. For being the, the NBA player who would come into that youth team and instead of just showing off what a good player he is, actually helping them. He says this is the attitude that we need to have is to look at our brothers and sisters in Christ and instead of saying, "Ugh, I can't believe you haven't grown more in Jesus yet. What's wrong with you? To say, how can we help each other grow in Jesus? How can we help each other get deep into the Word, deep into our walk with Christ, see the fruit of the Spirit growing in each other's lives? This is what he says in Ephesians 4 about this. It says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints, it's you guys, for the work of the ministry. What's that work of the ministry? 
for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together, by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's what we need to get on board with here. That kind of love that builds up. I just want to think briefly as we, as we come to the end of this passage for today about Christ's love for us. I mentioned this already a little bit in verse 15 where it says, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. You see, you see the contrast that's set up there? That sometimes the sin in our hearts would turn toward this kind of harmful division and destruction and stumbling blocks and traps toward other people and arrogance and pride and just these ugly things that would be displayed in our relationship with others as we would put ourselves high and consider others low. But you contrast that with Christ. He says, look at these people around you, brothers and sisters in Christ, and consider them to be those for whom Christ has died. This, this church uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ whom God has purchased with his own blood, it says in Acts 20. He says, consider that. That's, that's something that we need to consider as we look around at each other. Hey, I could just say, I don't like that guy. But what did Jesus say about that guy? Well, he humbled himself to the point of death for that guy. That makes a difference in how I ought to think and act around my brother in Christ. Even if our personalities in a worldly way don't mesh, it's okay. God chose him. God chose me. Let's, let's build each other up in Christ. But you need to hear this unbeliever as well. Maybe you're not in Christ today. Maybe some of the things I said to you today are absolutely revolting and you find them unloving and you find them to be stumbling blocks. And maybe the reason for that is because you're outside of Christ. And maybe the reason for that is because light has been shined on your heart by the word and you're uncomfortable with it because you'd rather hide in the darkness than come to a place of repentance and faith in the Savior. If that's you, I have good news for you, which is that God has loved sinners just like you and me, sinners who in our own hearts wanted to hide in the darkness. And this is the way in which he has loved the world is that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What Jesus has done is he's shown humility. He's laid aside his freedom in order to come and to save sinners. He, he tells us who are believers in Philippians 2.5, have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. But then he tells believers and unbelievers, here's what Jesus did. Listen to this. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, which means a thing to be taken advantage of. Instead, what did he do as God the Son? It says he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. Sinner, lost in your sin, did you know that Jesus came and was put in the place of sinners like you and died suffering under the wrath of God to save sinners like you? It's a free gift of eternal life that he bought there by his blood that you can receive by turning to him in faith. Receive it. And believers who have that free gift of eternal life, the call of Romans 14 is follow after the footsteps of Christ in laying aside your freedoms out of love for those whom God has loved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who did lay aside his freedoms out of love for sinners like us. God, I pray that more and more people who are outside of Christ right now would repent to see that their thinking has been wrong all along, to see that their love of sin has been wrong all along, and that Christ is the Savior. And I pray that you would turn them to him in faith. Lord, save them. God, I thank you for doing that for so many who are sitting around here as brothers and sisters in Christ, saints, as you've called us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have that same kind of humble mind among ourselves, which was also in Christ, who died for us. God, prevent us from doing destructive things toward our brother, from having pride that would turn into hatred. And Lord, help us to make peace and to mutually upbuild. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.